Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, focused on applying Mazda's customer-centric approach for vehicle design to car buying and servicing in order to create an experience centered around the customer. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com. This is Charlotte Talks. I'm Mike Collins. On the local news roundup, Union County commissioners decide not to fluoridate water coming from their new water source. Truist is about to have some signage competition as Charlotte City Council okays a request from Wells Fargo to put their sign on top of their new building. The battle begins. The 30-year saga of the Leandro case makes its fifth stop at the state Supreme Court at stake millions of public education dollars ordered by a trial court. A Charlotte native wins the Daytona 500, and Charlotte FC's third season is about to start with a new coach running things. Here to talk about all of those stories and more is Ann Doss-Helms, WFAE's education reporter. Alexandria Sands is back with us. She reports for Axios Charlotte. Mary C. Curtis is a columnist for RollCall.com and host of their Equal Time podcast. And Eric Spanberg is managing editor of the Charlotte Business Journal. Good morning to you all. Welcome. Good morning. Good morning, and a new equal time just dropped. Oh, well, good. <laughs> nice to know. Thank you. Let's talk about fluoride and dropping fluoride. Fluoride's <laughs> been added to municipal water systems ever since 1945, as a matter of fact. It's become a standard practice. It's backed by the CDC, which says fluoride in the water is vital for helping to keep teeth healthy in young children. But this week, Union County commissioners voted three to two to stop adding fluoride to county water. Alex, why? There is an argument that the opponents are making that they should have the right to medical freedom here and that the government shouldn't be deciding what medication is put into the water. Um, They've said that it could be harmful to pregnant women or it could lower the IQ of children. Uh, The other side of that is that the fluoride has health benefits um, for children to prevent cavities um, and to keep their teeth healthy, and especially children who may not be able to go to the dentist, maybe whose parents can't afford to do that. So there's two sides of that argument, um, and the side one that said that they shouldn't be forcing this medication. Yeah, David Williams is a county commissioner out in Union County. He pointed out that we add lots of things to the water to treat the water to make it safe for drinking. But adding fluoride is different because he says it's used to treat us, not the water, us. And that should be an individual choice. How about, you know, we don't put a chemical into the water that's meant to treat us? You know, and if you want to use fluoride, if you're a strong believer in its efficacy, then by all means, go out and buy a a tube of fluoride toothpaste. Uh, Go out and buy a fluoride rinse. And he added that the benefits of fluoride are topical with no benefit from ingesting it. I don't know if that's true or not, but if that's true, why do dentists and the CDC claim that cavities have been on the decline since fluoride has been added to the water supply? And if that's true, as one mother said at the first meeting over this in Union County, I think it was last week, why would you take that out of the water and deprive our children of healthier teeth, Eric? Well, uh, this reminds me of... uh... Arguments we've had certainly during the the heat of the pandemic uh, recently in Alabama, and that is uh, a lot of people who aren't scientists or doctors 
uh, trying to play scientist and doctor. Now, there is some evidence that uh, pregnant women, for example, could be uh, affected by fluoride at high levels, but the CDC lowered the level recommended level of fluoride in water systems in 2015. So there's, you know, there, there seems to be not much basis for this, uh, but people are really wound up about it and they got three of the five votes, uh, the majority that they needed. And so now this will take effect. One important note here is this affects about, I think it's like one third of the water supply. It's one water plant in Union County, but it's they also get water from other places. So it's not 100% of the water that goes to Union County. Mary. Yeah, I think to follow up on what Eric said, this follows a trend of a mistrust in science. We've seen it with the COVID vaccine, where even some states like Florida are putting doubts about the vaccine. We also see it in increasingly a lot of parents opting out of giving their children vaccines, which has caused problems in some school systems where some diseases have started to surface. Sometimes they use medical reasons that they've read something or they've heard something, or as Eric said, there's some study. Other times they use religious reasons for opting out, but this is part of a trend. So let's hear from some of the scientists, uh, and I guess medical doctors and dentists are, are scientists, and uh, they testified at these various meetings that they've been holding in Union County. At Monday's meeting, one dentist spoke about the importance of fluoride in the water because it reduces cavities. Cavities are the most common chronic disease of childhood. They're painful, expensive to fix, but studies have shown that they have broader implications for a child's health. And at the first meeting, I think it was last week or two weeks ago, Union County commissioners held on this issue, they heard from this dentist. We're part of a society and it's thinking about the greater good. As a dentist, I would much rather give good news. The best day is when we get to tell kids and parents that they don't have any cavities and a huge part of that is fluoride. He hit on a key point when he spoke about the greater good. This seems to be something that is on the decline in many aspects of our politics and our society, and I think it's being driven in large part by our politics. Mark Moss, a professor at the East Carolina School of Dental Medicine, told WCCB-TV, fluoride is successful in keeping communities healthy, but clearly that is not what this decision is about. There's a, a sense that this is not really about whether fluoride works or not. It's about individual freedom. So clearly, we should not be forced to ingest things that are bad for us. And at least one person at the recent commission meeting made the claim that fluoridated water was bad for pregnant women. Fluoride in public drinking water can cause significant IQ damage to gestating children when consumed by pregnant mothers. So I looked this up yesterday, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, and it turns out she's right. <laughs> According to many sources, there is a legitimate concern, and the Harvard School of Public Health says that, quote, evidence is mounting that in an era of fluoridated toothpastes and other consumer products that boost dental health, the potential risks of consuming fluoridated water may outweigh the benefits for some individuals. And in 2015, for the first time, the U.S. Public Health Service lowered its recommended levels of fluoride in drinking water. So I guess we could say that Union County is on the cutting edge of the movement in this area. Are, are any other municipalities considering doing this? 
Aren't there, uh, I can't remember, maybe it was the WFAE report. One of the reports I read last night said there are at least three other cities, uh, Portland, Wichita, Kansas, and I think Honolulu, Hawaii, who do not fluoridate their water. Right. So there right. are a few examples out there. Uh, now, the, you said I was going to ask this question because I, I was under the impression that this was only, when they talked about this the first time, it was only dealing with the new Yadkin River yeah. Water Treatment Plant, which is about to come online. Uh, I was curious as to whether this vote this week expanded it to all of their water, but I just heard you say, Eric, that they're confining it to the Yadkin plant. So what have they really achieved here? Who gets that water? Is it, is it blended in with the, uh, the water coming from their other water source? How does that work? Well, I, I think that certain uh, certain homes received from certain plants, I believe, is, ha is how that goes. Uh, so that's why you have multiple sources of water but now we're, we're getting to a level of technical expertise okay <laughs> and so and it seems like you would need to know what what you're whether you had yeah. it or not because right. you would need to know whether to do the fluoride treatments with your children right yeah. so whether this science is pseudoscience or real science or whether the science paints a complete picture or not i'm just wondering if anybody's going to be monitoring the results of this decision over time are we going to see clusters of cavity-ridden children uh, what do we think? That's a really interesting question, Mike. I haven't heard anyone say that, you know, during this debate yet, but I have to think with the testimony you played from doctors and dentists that uh, people will pay attention to this and try and monitor whether there is any increase in tooth decay and cavities and uh, other dental problems. Because and as somebody who lives on a community well system, which is not fluoridated, and I cannot be the only person in this greater area, I think they do have a control group of, of still young people mm -hmm. who are not getting fluoridated water. And we did do the yeah. treatments and my son did have more cavities than I had. Um, now, whether, you know, I did grow up with fluoridated water, whether it lowered my IQ is, I guess, open to debate, but... <laughs> Uh, <laughs> but, but by the way, Mike, to, to Mary's point about how some of these things can get uh, out of control in a hurry, uh, Tennessee lawmakers this week in the legislature debated whether they need to take action on the possibility of vaccines being put in lettuce and tomatoes at the grocery store at some point. So um, you want to be careful who's playing doctor. Yikes. Okay. Uh, and I guess one of the things that we haven't talked about here, and we're going to move on, is that there are some concerns that if you take the fluoride out of the water, uh, people on the lower side of the socioeconomic spectrum uh, may suffer the most because maybe they don't buy, I don't know whether you can buy unfluoridated toothpaste, but maybe they won't be buying that, or maybe they don't buy toothpaste at all in, in some cases, particularly for kids, and that's, that's a concern. So... Let's move on. Rob Leandrew was in the eighth grade when his parents and others from five low-income rural counties in the state filed a lawsuit against the state, alleging that children in those areas were not receiving an adequate public school education as required by the state constitution. That case has taken that eighth grader's name, the Leandro case. But that eighth grader is now an attorney with a major law firm because the case has been bouncing back and forth in the courts for 30 years. And this week, it returned to the state Supreme Court for the fifth time. And you were following this closely yesterday because the arguments unfolded yesterday. Why was it back in front of the high court yet again? Well, they sort of thought they had it settled after round four of going to the state Supreme Court and... They had said, yes, you have to release this money that's been ordered. Um, 
And then there was an election, and there was a turnover on the Supreme Court, and it is now a Republican majority, and they put that on hold and said, we want to rehear this. Now, there's a term called stare decisis, in which uh, justices try to uphold previous decisions of their same body of, uh, of justices. In other words, if a, a previous Supreme Court has made a decision, they tend not to reverse it. But that has not proven to be the case with this new Supreme Court. They already overturned a decision made by the immediately prior court on voter maps. Are they likely to do it again with this? You know... I hate to make predictions because I actually found an article that I had written um, 20 years ago saying it looked like it was settled and over, um, but it certainly looks like where they're headed with this is that they will reverse. So Melanie Dubas is a lawyer for the school district suing or the school districts suing for more money. She told the court that the 2022 ruling should have been the end of all of this and allowing the case to continue is breaking with tradition and ignoring precedent. She also had some very harsh words for the legislative leaders fighting this order to release the money for education. The de defendant interveners now have moved beyond just obfuscation and recalcitrance, and they seek to drag the court into their gamesmanship. But Matthew Tilley, a Charlotte lawyer representing their legislative leaders, reiterated the argument that the courts lack the authority to override the General Assembly's decisions. He said the previous decisions went too far. This is not a contest between those who want to fund education and those who don't. It's also not a case about whether or not our Constitution guarantees every child in the state an opportunity to obtain a sound basic education. That right was granted in Leandro. Instead, the case is about whether the trial court, when presented with only district-specific claims, had jurisdiction to issue a sweeping statewide order or statewide orders that required the comprehensive remedial plan, a plan which dictates virtually every aspect of education policy and funding, not just for the districts that were plaintiffs, but for all 115 school districts across the state effectively removing those decisions from the political pro and the democratic process. We'll talk about that next. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte. Using Mazda's customer-centric approach to cars to create a car buying and servicing experience where the customer is the center of their business. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com. It's Charlotte Talks on Listener Funded 90.7 WFAE and WFAE.org. I'm Mike Collins. On the local news roundup this week, we have Alexandria Sands, reporter for Axia Charlotte, Mary C. Curtis, who is a Roll Call columnist, RollCall.com, and Equal Time podcast host. Uh, Eric Spanberg is managing editor of the Charlotte Business Journal, and Ann Doss Helms is our education reporter here at WFAE. We just heard one of the lawyers for uh, representing the legislative leaders in this Leandro case, Matthew Tilley, say that essentially the previous Supreme Court's decision uh, through the jurisdiction of these two judges and took it away from the legislature, and that, in essence, short-circuits the democratic process. But Ann, isn't part of the democratic process the fact that Supreme Courts at all levels get involved to interpret the Constitution and correct constitutional mistakes made by the other branches of government? And isn't that what is happening here? It certainly seems to be. I mean, that's that's the argument. And I think for the people, there are many people outside protesting. There's just this huge sense of frustration that after 30 years and after a huge amount of work to prepare reports about what it would take to do right by this, 
And they got the ruling and it went to the state Supreme Court and then they had an election and they said, whoa, hold up. We don't don't disperse that money. We're going to come back to this. So that is that is different. Mary, the Republican controlled General Assembly has been working diligently to concentrate power in their hands. They've consistently worked to reduce the power of the governor. Is this another example of that fighting the Supreme Court's decision saying, no, you have to make this money available? Well, I find it kind of interesting. Uh, this was the same uh, state legislature that went straight ahead at taking taxpayer money toward tuition for private schools, charter schools, uh, religious schools, um, some of which have very restrictive admission policies on who can and can't go. Uh, and yeah, they very much like having the power, particularly since they have a supermajority. And now with redistricting, it's going to be very hard to shake it. So this money, the, the need for this money, I'm sure, is substantially greater today than it was 30 years ago. And but talk about the money. How much money are we talking about in this case? Do you know? Because I keep seeing figures from the hundreds of millions of dollars to the billions of dollars. What is it? What's the number? You know, and I, I find that confusing also because it's kind of been happening bit by bit. I think the last ruling came right before the budget. And what um, apparently has been agreed is that some of that money actually is in the budget that would cover some of these things. So it did go from $1.7 billion to, I think, $678 million that's currently in question. But that's just for a short term. There would be, it, it adds up very quickly going forward in future years. So now the original, I don't have an exact number, but it's it's a lot of money. The original plaintiffs in this case are long out of school now. They probably have kids of their own or grandchildren of their own uh, in the schools. Today, however, 70% of current elementary and middle school students can't read at a level that the state standardized test says is compliant with the original Leandro decision. And that's something that the school district's attorney, Melanie Dubas, brought up in the court. And those are 480,049 third through eighth graders. It doesn't include the high schoolers. 480,049 children who will become the third generation of children since this lawsuit was filed to pass through our state school system without the benefit of relief. If this court takes away from them the relief that it finally delivered 14 months ago, you reported, and uh, that several of the justices had questions and made comments. What do you think can be gleaned? Sometimes justices on these courts ask questions that make you think they're against something or for something, and they're just probing. Uh, what, do you, what, what can be gleaned from what we heard yesterday? You know, I am not an experienced Supreme Court watcher. I was actually you know, pleasantly surprised to realize that there is a state Supreme Court YouTube channel, so I didn't have to drive to Raleigh to watch this. Um, but there were a lot of questions, of, and, and this to me was kind of out of the blue. And again, I haven't seen every process, but this Justice Dietz in particular, who is one of the newly elected justices, um, kept asking about, and, and the first time that he asked, well, are there any current students in here as plaintiffs? And it was actually the the lawyer who was arguing for this was, was like, I, I don't think so. It's been 30 years. You know, we don't have any. And so they were trying to, they had this sort of this convoluted argument about that if the government is the plaintiff rather than the children, that somehow it's it, it should be waiting for new students to file suit. So, uh, you know, again... I don't like to predict because I've predicted wrong. I thought it was over 20 years ago, but um, 
<laughs> you know, it's a 5-2 majority. And well, that's my next question. Where yeah. will they, courts, these high courts hear cases, and it takes them, unless it's an emergency of some sort, and clearly this is not one because it's been going on for 30 years, <laughs> uh, it takes them months to come down with the decision. When might we hear a decision, and when that decision is handed down, will that be the end of this? The first part, I don't know. I would hesitate to predict. I, I saw that um, Kern Huey in the News and Observer said it will be this calendar year, which is a lot of room to breathe. Okay. But will it be the end of it? I'm, I'm going to predict no. <laughs> this is a very, very complicated situation. It's, it's almost, unless you're an attorney, it's almost impossible to wrap your head around it. But we did a whole hour on it this week with Anne and several other people detailing this 30-year intersection of the courts with education. Uh, and if you want to hear it and try to get a little better understanding of it, you can go to our website, wfae.org. Before I move on, Mary. I'm just going to say, yes, it's very complicated in some ways, but in other ways, you want to ask, about the commitment of the state and communities to public school and their role. And that is one of the things that we talk about in that hour-long program, because there's a track record now that's fairly clear that there, that the state legislature either doesn't value public education or simply wants to provide a thousand different alternatives to people using money that would have gone to public education. And the question is, is that worsening public education for those who have to stay in the system, but that's in the program. Uh, Uptown's second tallest office tower is about to have a sign placed at the top. Charlotte City Council voted to approve Wells Fargo's request for that sign. Alex, on which building is it about to appear? It's going to go on the former Duke Energy Center building. This is the um, handlebar building, is that right? The handlebar building or the martini glass building. Okay. Um, some people have called it. Um, it's 550 South Tryon. Uh, so it's it's one of the ones that, depending on where you are in the city, it's very prominent, um, sometimes appearing larger than the Bank of America Tower. Um, so I think when this sign goes up, it's really going to catch people's attention. Um, people who are paying attention to the rezoning are going to be shocked when they see uh, these letters. You know, I've lived in other cities, and this has never been a topic of conversation. If you buy a building, your name goes on the building, and nobody blinks an eye. And for the longest time, however, Charlotte's uptown office towers had no signage at all on them at the tops of those buildings. It seemed to be a point of pride, which has trained, uh, changed rather in recent years, and some don't like the idea. Eric, why? I, they think it's aesthetically displeasing. Uh, tacky might be a better way to put it. Uh, they they conjure visions of I don't know Las Vegas or something or you know neon lights and logos. Uh, the letters, by the way, if if anyone's uh, scoring at home, fourteen foot letters. So these will be uh, highly visible. Yeah, I want. Uh, but as you what, say, go ahead, Mike. It's a very tall building, so people don't understand how big this sign is. It's eighteen hundred and eighty square feet, and there will be two of them, one on both sides yeah. of the handlebar at the top of the Wells Fargo building. That's as large as many people's homes. And as you say, <laughs> the letters are 14 feet tall. And to, to Alex's point, this is an 800-foot building. Uh, the tallest building in the city is the V of A Center, which is 1,200 feet. So this, you know, it's not like this is just a tin shack. It's pretty sizable. Uh, but I, I think you make an interesting point, Mike, which is that uh, clearly the wind has shifted on this because we had Truist come in, I think, in 2020 
uh, put their logo on what used to be the old Hearst Tower. And now we have this with, with Wells Fargo. And you know, certainly just the way companies think, uh, they're competitive, that we're bound to see more of this, which I think Councilwoman Ashmera brought up. Maybe there needs to be a better definition of how the city is going to look at these things because the zoning committee had denied this in January by a 5-2 vote, but council does not have to follow that vote, nor did they. Mm. Uh, Las Vegas. The, there, was <laughs> there was backlash on, about the truest uh, signage on the, on the old Hearst Tower, now the truest building, but how much of that had to do with the fact that it was a sign versus the fact that it's obscuring a lot of the architectural art deco interest that that building has? That's a good question. I, I don't I because it's been a few years, I can't remember kind of the ratio of the complaints, but you're right. I mean, that was a big deal. Again, going back to your point of it, traditionally in Charlotte, we just had not had that. But I think as with so many things, once you kind of break the precedent, now this one was much easier and probably other ones will be even easier than that, I suspect. And you may not be able to answer this question, Alex or Eric. Uh, uh, as you mentioned, Eric, the uh, uh, zoning committee initially said no to this request for the sign, but the city council said yes. Why did the committee say no and what swayed the council? I think the zoning committee um, just felt differently about it. They thought that this was gonna be setting a precedent for larger and larger signs. Um, the city council could also look at what city staff said, and city staff said that they thought it would be fine. They actually thought it would be visually interesting um, for the city. So they had the the blessing of city staff, but uh, they didn't follow the recommendation of the zoning committee, which, uh, you know, they might be uh, very passionate about aesthetics and development because that's a they're volunteering for that board. Okay, so in recent years, we have seen tensions build, and we're all too familiar with this on this program because we spent a lot of time talking about it in recent years, between the Mecklenburg County Commission and the Charlotte-Mecklenburg School Board, usually over money for the schools and school and student performance. This year, that friction uh, may not come from that quarter. It may come from the tight county budget, despite the fact that the county already raised the property tax for the current year to cover the debt for the $2.5 billion bond package that we all approved last, well, not all of us, but voters approved last <laughs> fall, uh, with another one-cent hike set for this coming year. But CMS says it needs more. And do tell. Yeah, so this is kind of the early stage of the back and forth between CMS, which for those who are new to this area does not have taxing authority. They have to go to the state and the county and ask for their money. And the county, I think, is about 25% of it, but it's where you have all that local debate. And so Dina DiOrio, the county manager, kind of laid out all the things that they know about this coming year and said, well, you know, there's going to be that one cent property tax sales hike because of the bonds, because of the construction. But if we if we stop there, we have about $36 million in growth, which to most of us would sound like, woohoo, you know, we're in the money. But that's really not much money in the context of it. For comparison, during this year that we're currently in, they had $90 million in growth to deal with. So the county is essentially kind of saying, this is pretty tight. And CMS, which has sort of been presenting this, they said, well, we do have the, the federal COVID money is going away, and we've got a whole bunch of stuff that's going on with that, but we're not going to ask you to make up that. But by the way, here are the things that we're seeing that we might like to add to the budget, and that added up to $189 million in needs. And again, 
bear in mind that we're talking about 36 million that might be available, not just for CMS, but for everything. Unless, so this, seem, this seems like a more, they raise the property tax. This seems like a familiar refrain, Anne. I mean, we go through it this is. every year. The, the the school system comes to the county board and says we want X, and the county board says no, it's too much. We're going to give you Y, and this is all this, this is part of the negotiation pattern that anybody goes through. Is this different this time? You know, I am not sure. Crystal Hill is doing this for her first time really in the seat. That's the superintendent of Charlotte Mecklenburg Schools. And she kept saying, I am not saying we're going to ask for all of this. There's still a lot of room to shuffle things around. So this is still early stages. She and Dina DiOrio, the county manager, seemed to work well together. They actually got their full request last year. It was a $39 million increase, not a Hundred eighty nine million. So I don't yeah. think they're going to come ask for one hundred eighty nine million dollars. Right. Before but, we started this conversation this morning, you, you told me that there's also fifty four million dollars uh, in deferred maintenance that needs to be done. And that's not covered in the two point five billion dollar bond package. Is it covered in the one hundred eighty nine million dollars that they're asking for? Yes. And to be clear, they haven't asked for that. They've said, here are some things that we're looking at, uh, but they've made it pretty clear that, yeah, this is pr some pretty urgently needed repairs. And again, the bonds are building new schools, building new wings, doing massive renovations. This is stuff like new roofs, new heating and air conditioning systems. And by the way, they've got 200 properties. This is for 30 of them. So, mm. you know, you don't have to do it all this year, but it's just building up. And they warned that you're going to be looking at a lot of money down the road. So meanwhile, the other bone of contention in recent years has been about school and student performance versus money given by the commission to CMS. And Commissioner George Dunlop was the most vocal critic of CMS in the past, but not this time. We wanted to see a trajectory of moving forward, moving ahead, moving up, improvement. And I think this demonstrates that we're moving in that direction. He was referring, I believe, to the recently released performance statistics. But I'm a little confused, Anne, because uh, the, reserver, the observer is reporting today that they're not going to meet their student achievement goals. And Crystal Hill is reported as having said, and we reported this months ago, that those goals were essentially unrealistic, highly aspirational, I think were, was, were her words. Uh, so when, Arthur, when George Dunlop says we're moving in the right direction, what's he talking about? Well, you know, scores really tanked during the pandemic when kids were not at school, and they have rebounded significantly from there. They are not back up to where they were, and where they were was not good enough. I mean, you did have the old goals were set pre-pandemic, and then you had just sort of everything got shook up, not only by the pandemic, but by a lot of turnover in CMS leadership. So you've got almost a totally new board, a totally new superintendent. So they're kind of saying, yeah, we did not meet those goals. And we've talked about that on the show many a time, not going to meet them, but we're looking ahead for the coming five years. And we've set more realistic goals and Crystal Hill is going to be, you know, her evaluations are going to be hanging over whether she can meet these upcoming goals. And she is so, currently working on the strategy for that. So George Dunlop is happy. Arthur Griffin, who's also on the county commission, is not. He used to chair the school board. He says he's disappointed in the five-year academic goals that the school board has set, and he believes that they are too low. Uh, your goals for me, from where I sit, are horribly, horribly low. And CMS Superintendent Dr. Crystal Hill, as you might imagine, disagreed with Griffin's criticism. 
our board has set extremely high standards um, for me and for our district. So I have 45 seconds. Is he alone in that opinion? And he's also alleged that CMS is losing the black middle class and that we can, can't afford to lose the middle class out of our public school system. He's not wrong. I mean, it's totally this half empty, half full thing that they have been debating forever, which is that scores are way too low, especially for black and Hispanic students. And you see those patterns across the state and across the nation. You know, can they make a meaningful difference? I guess that's Crystal Hill's superintendency is going to hang on that. Uh, still more to discuss about that, and then we'll move on to something else at CMS that happened that has a lot of people's uh, people upset. Uh, and uh, the South Carolina primary is looming large. We'll talk about that, too, on WFAE. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, incorporating Mazda's customer-centric vehicle design by making the customer the center of business to create a better car buying experience. More at MazdaOfSouthCharlotte.com. It's Charlotte Talks on WFAE and WFHE. I'm Mike Collins. Ann Doss Helms is with us, our education reporter at WFAE News. Mary C. Curtis, columnist and host of the Equal Time podcast for RollCall.com. Uh, Alexandria Sands is a reporter for Axios Charlotte. And Eric Spanberg is managing editor of the Charlotte Business Journal. Uh, before we move on from this back and forth about student performance and money, et cetera, at CMS, uh, as you report, Ann, there was this back and forth between Arthur Griffin and Crystal Hill until... Commissioner George Dunlop broke in saying, quote, it is the Board of Education whose job it is to determine what the goals and standards are. And if anybody wants to do something different, they need to run for the school board and set different goals. That sounds like a suggestion to Griffin that he ought to go back to the school board if he's so, so concerned about the schools. That it's not the job of the county commission, which is reminiscent. Right, and the irony is that three wait a minute, county wait a commissioners minute. are, yeah. Well, it's reminiscent of the criticism levied at George Dunlap by the previous school board chair, Elise <laughs> Dashu, who said in, in this big dust-up they had about two years ago, you control the money, we run the schools. And George Dunlap and Arthur Griffin and Bill Malik, three of the county commissioners, all used to be on the school board. And, you know, contrary to what they sometimes might hint at, it was not all rosy then. These, these challenges are not something that was created by any set of elected officials. They're they nationwide and they're, <laughs> yeah, they're longstanding. So a Black History Month display at West Charlotte High School has elicited both complaints and a promise from CMS to, quote, retrain teachers. Uh, first of all, Anne, what's the, what, what's the, what was the display that everybody is up in arms about? So the display was posted on social media. It was at West Charlotte High School, and it's essentially showing a white door and a black door. And I'm trying to remember what the the header, it was clearly that it was a historical thing and that this was how things used to be set up, that there were black and white entries. And the post was actually on um, the HBCU Pride Nation's Facebook page, which is historically black colleges and universities. And West Charlotte, for those who are new to this area, uh, Sears entrance circa 1930 is what it was labeled. So it was telling you essentially this is what you would have seen in 1930 if you'd walked into a Sears. And the doors and, were labeled white entrance, colored entrance. Right. And for context. They were side by side. West. This was at West Charlotte High School, right. which is iconic for those of us who have been here for a long time. If you're not, it was an all-black high school in the days of segregation. During desegregation, it was actually nationally recognized for desegregating and bringing white and black students together. It has now resegregated 
it only has 25 white students, 75% are black. So that's the context for this. And okay, it was so do we know the intent? Media. Do we know the intent yeah. of the display? What was the intent? The intent, I would assume, and I have not reported on this. I want to be clear. I, you know, I was a little bit busy this week, but um, <laughs> the intent was to get people talking. I think okay. to, to so illustrate Mary, Mary how we history. teach how we teach history and what we teach about history has become a hot topic nationwide. And this display is an example of what black people experienced every single day of their lives during Jim Crow. It, it, it is marking one school door as white as the white entrance and the other as the colored entrance an effective way to demonstrate that history and its impact or is there something inherently wrong with that? Well, I think it's opened up an interesting discussion because uh, parents of, of all races have thought, well, some, that it needs to be realistically taught. And this was real, white and colored, from people who are still alive today who remember it. And others have said, this is a Black high school. Why would we want to upset and marginalize our Black students any further? Um, and you have different races on different sides of this debate at a time when there's discussions all over the country of how much parental control and how much control of legislatures should be on how history is taught. Should you have Black History Month where you have the safe displays to Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King, and Barack Obama, former president, and leave it at that? Or should we delve deeper to make students think deeper, think in a deeper way, and perhaps become uncomfortable. And usually the discussions have turned around white students being uncomfortable. But this one was interesting because some parents were saying, my black students feel marginalized by this and they don't particularly care for it. So but I think it's the beginning of discussion. CMS issued a statement that the teachers at West Charlotte decorated doors that displayed an inappropriate content and that, quote, the activity is not aligned to state standards or with CMS curriculum and approved lesson plans. History is uncomfortable. This made people uncomfortable. Is it not valid to, to let young people experience that history in a visceral way? so that they can understand what that time was like before they were alive. <clears throat> I think Mary's right that this is just, it's one of those really difficult questions because it is easy to imagine a really great discussion coming from this and a really great teacher handling it very well. And this was, doors were decorated all across the school. This was not the only thing. I can actually imagine if you're one of 25 white students at a large comprehensive high school, that could be a little awkward for the white kids. Um, but, but, but my point is that many kids today, and, and, and when I, hell, when I went to school, why do we have to learn this? That's ancient history. It doesn't have any relationship to my life whatsoever. Why do I have to know that? Well, because it, history, what you don't know, comes around again. And is this not a way to really make this history come alive and hit home and open your eyes to, uh, to understanding in a way that you cannot by just reading it out of a, out of a book. Mary? It's so, it's so interesting. When I was in Johannesburg to go to the, uh, part, some of the museums, they had, you came in, you got a ticket, and you, it was either for the colored or the white because they wanted you coming into that museum to feel it, to feel what it felt like. And I, I get the intention, but it, you also see how school systems and districts are very sensitive to that 
because they know anything like this will open them up to criticism by parents of every race. So uh, it's interesting that they immediately jumped in to say, uh, not to explain in a sense what it was around it, but to say, we're going to retrain. And I would love to hear discussions with the students. That's something because they're the ones. I would love to hear this. And I think I think debating what's going on now is a great lesson for the students, if yeah. if anyone dares to kind of delve into that at West Charlotte or other high schools. <clears throat> I hate to say this, but retraining the teachers smacks of Mao Zedong. Uh, the uh, South Carolina primary is tomorrow, and on the Republican side, Donald Trump is going to be the big winner unless some miracle happens. He's 35 points ahead of the state's former governor, Nikki Haley. Some of you, perhaps a few of you in the media, came here today to see if I'm dropping out of the race. Well, I'm not. Well, she's not, but two things have become clear in recent weeks about Haley. She will likely not get out of the race, even if she loses the South Carolina primary. And now some would say uh, she's finally making some more barbed comments about Trump. Why is she starting so late in her criticisms of Trump? Mary? It's interesting. I think she's she's been operating thinking that maybe something will happen to Trump or an indictment will, will stick or and she'll be the last person standing. And she has money behind her. That's she has a lot of big donors who are allowing her to stay in the race. And it's and, and this is her home state. And you would think, well, if you lose your home state, you're out. And everybody in the state, most of the folks in this, not everyone, but most of the officials from Tim Scott uh, to Nancy Mace, the, the congresswoman, have endorsed Donald Trump, and he will win probably by 30-some points. But it's instead of saying, I'm really not going to think about uh, Nikki Haley, Trump is very annoyed that she won't drop out of the race and cede everything to him and let the RNC just go behind him. And he's been making incredibly personal attacks and wild ones. He criticized her husband, who's deployed military, and saying he's gone to get away from her, kind of implying that in a state where there are a lot of veterans, and it doesn't seem to matter. Nothing so. seems to matter anymore. The rules are all <laughs> gone. There are no more rules at all. Uh, clearly, she knows she's far behind Trump. Clearly, she knows she's going to lose on Saturday in South Carolina. But she has been making appeals to South Carolina Democrats. If they didn't vote in the Democratic primary in February, uh, earlier this month, February 3rd, I think it was, they should come and vote for her in the Republican primary, because that's completely legal in South Carolina. Any party from any party can vote in either primary as long as they haven't voted before in the primary. Is that likely to have any impact on the vote outcome at all? Probably not. And even if some Democrats do cross over, that's been used as an attack against her by Republicans who say, really, she's not. She's a Republican in name only, which is she's very conservative. I mean, she just came out on the Alabama room, uh, ruling on embryos and said embryos are babies. She's very, very conservative. And once you get to Super Tuesday on March 5th, all of those states are going to vote strongly against Nikki Haley and pro-Trump. So, uh, yes, it's yes, she's going to lose and it's not going to make a big difference. But she says she's staying in for the long haul and she does have financial backing. And I guess my question is, is the financial backing really in for the long haul? Are they, if she loses Super Tuesday and he's clearly the front runner and he clearly has the delegate count, will that be the end of it? Or will they continue to fund her on the off chance 
that he'll become brutally entangled in these legal battles he's facing this summer, and or something will happen health-wise, and they'll have an open convention, and they'll have to replace him. Is that what they're hoping? She'll lose some money because people will increasingly want to get on the good side of Donald Trump. As he said, he'll have retribution against anyone who's against him. But she will have some from people who have money. And she's even getting some money from Democrats and maybe setting herself up not just for this year, but 2028. Uh, If he loses, she can say, I told you so. If if he is the nominee and loses, the Republican Party post-Trump, although I would argue that the Republican Party is totally changed, even post-Trump. She has said that she has no interest in being Trump's vice president, but another South Carolinian would certainly want that job. In fact, Trump called him out at a recent town hall appearance on Fox. Well, always the first quality has to be somebody that you think will be a good president, because if something should happen, you have to have somebody that's going to be a great president. A lot of people are talking about that gentleman right over there. And he's been, he's been so great. He's been such a great advocate. I, I have to say, I don't, this is in a very positive way, Tim Scott, he has been much better for me than he was for himself. I watched his campaign, and he doesn't like talking about himself, but boy, does he talk about Trump. And I said, you know, I called him, I said, Tim, you're better for me than you were for yourself. But he's fantastic, and he's a fantastic person. Because he endorsed uh, Trump. Trump. He Trump later mentioned, this, even when I'm he's sorry, praising somebody. <laughs> yeah. He has to, like, stick the knife yeah, in. Yeah, <laughs> He'll right. still pour salt in the wound, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he later mentioned some other possible candidates that he considered to be two choices. So, Tim, don't get your hopes up. Meanwhile, North Carolina House uh, Speaker Tim Moore has received the Trump endorsement and as he seeks the congressional seat, I think number 14, which includes Charlotte and Belmont and Gastonia. On Truth Social, Trump gave Moore his, quote, complete and total endorsement because he would, quote, stand up, to the woke mob, which Trump claimed is, quote, destroying the country. Trump's endorsement of other candidates, of course, has, has turned out, have turned out to be the kiss of death for those candidates. Is that less likely to be the case here? Well, I think it might be less likely to be the case because Tim Moore is the biggest name. Uh, he has a lot of financial and political backing. And uh, relative to the others in the race, you'd have to say he is a strong favorite. He's been the Speaker of the House uh, since 2015. He's been in the legislature for 21 years. So he's got a lot of name recognition, and particularly in the area of the state that he's running for Congress. So some sad news this week. Dan Wade, a young man, the owner of the Wooden Robot Brewery here in Charlotte, died in a fall on Tuesday. What do we know about what happened? Alex. We don't know much of what happened beyond what you said. We know there was an accident. Um, it's, it was related to a fall. Um, but the brewery has closed both tap rooms for now. There's um, two GoFundMe's going on. One would help out the employees while the tap room is closed. The other one would help out the family. Um, Wade was a young father. He, they, him and his wife had a newborn son, a born just last month. So some of that money would go towards helping out um, the son with his future education and helping the wife um, hire a nurse to help with the child. And he was well-liked in the community. Rick Benfield, who's the vice president of sales and marketing for a rival brewing company, Blue Blaze Brewing, sang his praises to WSOC-TV. Dan was such a big part of our brewing community, very well-respected, a a darn good brewer, and um, it's just a shame especially at his young age, 
uh, to lose a talent like that. And he told Channel 9 uh, that Wade loved to celebrate with other breweries because the brewing community in Charlotte was important to him. I almost like to call him king of collaborations because he really loved to collaborate with other breweries, not only here local, but statewide and even outside the state. Well, uh, Eric, I have a minute here. The Super Bowl is over, and now it's on to Charlotte FC. They're about to start <clears throat> their third season. It begins tomorrow night, Saturday night, for those listening on Saturday morning at 7.30. They play New York FC at uh, Bank of America Stadium, and they say this will be a can't-miss event. How so? <laughs> well, they've had very good fan support the first two years, second in the league in attendance both of those years, and they're expecting around 60,000 fans. Uh, for the home openers. So uh, one of the things that's really stood out about this club is the diversity of their fans and the enthusiasm of their fans. And they're hoping to keep that going with a new head coach named Dean Smith. Who says uh, FC, Charlotte FC will now be much harder to beat. We'll see. Yes. As they say in those NASCAR Hall of Fame commercials, this is our home this is our sport. And the winner of this week's Daytona 500 is also ours, William Byron, or Brian, excuse me. He's a Charlotte native who didn't come up through a racing family and, in fact, made his name in online iRacing. What is iRacing? Very quickly. It's a racing simulator, and uh, you're right. That's how he really got his first taste of the sport. And William Byron went to Charlotte Country Day, uh, grew up idolizing many of the drivers who live here in town, and now he is up there with them as a Daytona 500 winner. Yeah, one of his childhood heroes was Jimmy Johnson, who finished 28th at Daytona, <laughs> which gave William Byron pause, uh, or Brian. Is it Brian or Byron? Byron. William Byron. Okay. Gave him pause, but he won nonetheless, and this is what was going through his head as he did. I just thought to myself, man, I know what just happened, like huge wreck, like all those things. I felt bad about that, you know, the push, all those things, and I just had to block that out and then think about and this might be my only shot to ever win this race. Like, literally. There's a lot of people that never get a chance to line up on the front row with two laps to go. So I feel like that motivated me. And Os Helms, Alexandria Sands, Mary C. Curtis, Eric Spanberg, thank you all for the hour. Celebrating 25 years on the air, Charlotte Talks with Mike Collins is a production of 90.7 WFAE. Support for Charlotte Talks comes from Mazda of South Charlotte. Our executive producer is Wendy Herkey. The senior producers are Gabe Altieri and Sarah D'Elia. Our engineer is Joby Sprinkle. For more information about Charlotte Talks, to listen to past episodes, or subscribe to the podcast, visit wfae.org slash charlotte talks. Additional support for WFAE programming comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, focused on applying Mazda's customer-centric approach for vehicle design to car buying and servicing in order to create an experience centered around the customer. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com.